We are in Matthew chapter 11 this morning, uh, looking at verses 20 through 30. It's the last 11 uh, verses in the chapter uh, 11 there. And we already referenced them this morning in our call to confession. Um, Famous verses at the end here of chapter 11, uh, which everyone will recognize. And I think you'll notice as we read the first, um, what is that? eight verses that uh, the context is quite shocking. Um, And so we'll unpack those first eight verses before we get to the uh, words of comfort that Jesus has for us. Um, But before that, let's read uh, again Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 through 30. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Jesus began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the skies? No! You will go down to the depths. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned, and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me. All you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would enlighten our hearts and our minds. We ask, Father, that you would open up blind eyes this morning. We ask, Father, that you would give us a renewed confidence in your love for us and the invitation to come to Christ as weary, burdened sinners. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, we... uh, tend to throw around the word miracle to describe things that are pretty amazing in this life, but that might not actually be miracles. We can look at a sunset and be so stunned by its beauty that we say, wow, that's miraculous. But it's not. It's not miraculous. It's It's the combination of cloud formations, light refraction, planetary alignment with the sun, and that's all it is. 
We take a newborn baby in our arms and we say, look at this little miracle. But it's not. That baby is simply the result of natural development when a zygote and an egg come together to form an embryo and the natural growth that goes from there produces a baby. We slam on our brakes on the freeway and barely avoid hitting the car in front of us and we say, oh man, it was a miracle. I didn't hit her. But it's not. It's not a miracle. It's, it's the result of reflexes, uh, the, the development of anti-lock braking systems, uh, the particular um, friction created by your tires and the road conditions at that moment. And if it had been raining, you for sure would have slammed into that woman. So what is a miracle? The definition of a miracle is this. It's an extraordinary event manifesting divine intervention in human affairs. So a miracle has three components. It's extraordinary, uh, meaning it's something beyond what is ordinary. It's manifest, which means it's visible so that everyone knows it happened. And it's the result of divine intervention. There's no other explanation for it. We're going to see this morning that the greatest miracle that ever happens is when a sinner repents of their sin and puts their faith in Jesus Christ. And for this miracle to take place, three things must happen. First, you must repent. Second, you must be chosen. And finally, you must come. So first, you must repent. We've talked a lot about repentance as we've made our way through the book of Matthew. Uh, that's not incidental. It's something that Matthew brings up quite a lot. But here in this passage, Jesus is calling us to be very clear about the necessity of repentance in the Christian life. If you remember from chapter 3, when we met John the Baptist, his message was, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And then in chapter 4, when Jesus began his ministry, he was preaching the exact same message, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. But in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus' message is a little different. He says, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. Sometimes in Scripture we're called to repent. Sometimes in Scripture we're called to repent and believe other times we're called to simply believe. There's a story in the book of Acts where Paul and Silas are in prison in Philippi singing hymns all night. And God sends an earthquake to literally break their shackles and open up the prison doors. But Paul and Silas don't leave. And when the prison guard, who would have been put to death if his prisoners had escaped, finds out that they stayed there, sparing his life, he says to them, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. So what do we have to do to be saved? Do we have to repent, or do we have to believe? 
And the answer is yes. Yes. One commentator I read said this. He said, the individual who trusts in Christ simultaneously turns away from sin. In believing, he repents, and in repenting, believes. See, the beauty of the Christian gospel is that we're saved by faith alone. All we do is look to Christ and receive and rest and everything that he's done. He, he earned perfect righteousness in our place. He gives that to us as a free gift. And in faith, we receive that free gift. We are saved by that faith and that faith alone. But that faith is never alone. True belief is always accompanied by repentance. And we repent because we believe. Repentance and faith always go together. You don't have one without the other. That's why the Bible says sometimes repent, other times it says repent and believe, and other times we're commanded to believe. So with that in mind, in our passage this morning we're told, then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. Now, not everyone in these towns failed to repent because Jesus' disciples were from these towns as well, but the vast majority of them did not. They saw him perform miracles. They saw him raise the dead and cast out demons and, and heal all the sick. They heard his teaching. They recognized that he taught with authority and not like the scribes and the Pharisees. They knew he was a powerful miracle worker who said and did things that only somebody who had been sent from God could say and do. They saw extraordinary events manifesting divine intervention. What other proof did they need? They may have even said they believed in Jesus. And on some level, they did believe in him as a teacher and a miracle worker because of what they saw with their own eyes. But it's one thing to believe Jesus is great and powerful and wonderful. To even believe that he's the Messiah or the Son of God. Or to even believe that he died for sinners. It's one thing to know all of that is true, and it's another thing to be so moved by it that it changes your heart. You see, true faith is more than knowing and believing the facts about who Jesus is and all that he's done, because true faith produces repentance. We don't walk away from our sin in order to come to Christ. But when we come to Christ, we walk away from our sin. And the moment we first believe, we might still be standing there holding our sin. But by faith, we believe that God is holy, that he will not and cannot be in the presence of sin. By faith, we believe that we are sinners who deserve God's just wrath and punishment for our sin. By faith, we believe sin is what God says sin is. And we know that we are guilty. And by faith, we also understand that God took on human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. 
and that he died for sinners like us. See, God loved you so much that he came himself to save you. So that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. By faith, we understand that Jesus got what we deserve, that we might get what he deserves. And faith is knowing all this and accepting it as true, and then it's also trusting and resting in the fact that not only did Jesus die for sinners, but that Jesus died for me. Do you believe this? If you do, you will repent because repentance is the reflex action of faith. Just like when the doctor hits your knee and your foot kicks up. Repentance is godly sorrow for sin. True repentance is more than just being sorry we got caught. It's, it's, it's grieving because of what our sin cost God and what our sin costs everyone that we love. Repentance is hating our sin because we see it for what it really is, misery that destroys us. There's no way to sin without also hating our neighbor. And repentance is also fear of God. Like a little kid who wanders out onto a busy street and is greeted by screeching tires and honking horns. That's what God does for us in repentance. He, he gives us a sense of that kind of fear because of what sin deserves. We hear the screeching tires and honking horns of his wrath only to discover that we've been snatched out of that accident by the blood of Jesus. So it is true that we are saved by faith alone. The moment we receive and rest in the finished work of Christ, we are saved, but true faith is always accompanied by repentance. So the reason that the people in the towns that Jesus went to did not repent is not necessarily because they did not believe. They believed true things about Jesus, but they didn't grasp the seriousness of sin, the holiness of God, or how wonderful it would be to really be a citizen in the kingdom of heaven. They thought they were good. They didn't really believe Jesus when he said, our righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, and that they must be perfect as their heavenly Father is perfect. So why didn't they repent? That takes us to our next point. You must be chosen. So a natural question to ask at this point is why didn't the people living in the towns where Jesus performed most of his miracles repent? Why weren't those miracles enough for them to believe all of Jesus' words? If God literally came down from heaven to walk on earth, teaching and performing miracles, you would think that should be enough to convince anyone. And the answer is that in order to repent, God must choose to reveal himself to you. You see, seeing a miracle is not enough. God must perform a miracle inside of our hearts. Next, Jesus goes on to warn and name the towns in Galilee that are rejecting him. He says, woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. 
For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. So Tyre and Sidon were two cities just to the north of Israel on the coast. And in the Old Testament, we learn that they were filled with pagan Gentiles. In fact, there's uh, prophecies in Ezekiel and Isaiah against Tyre and Sidon because of their sin. And at Jesus' time, they were still filled with pagans and Gentiles. And there are a couple things we need to notice about what Jesus says here. First, Jesus says, if he would have performed his miracles in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented. Long ago, he says. Which means, Jesus could have performed his miracles in those cities, and they would have repented. But he chose not to. Let that sink in. See, sometimes we think of God as if he's doing everything he can do to get people to repent and believe. And he's just hoping that we will. But here, Jesus tells us that he let the people entire inside on die to face judgment when he could have saved them. He just chose not to for some reason. That means Jesus went to Chorazin and Bethsaida to perform miracles, increasing their judgment when Tyre and Sidon would have repented if Jesus had gone there. So Chorazin and Bethsaida's judgment was worse because those who have the most knowledge of Jesus and refuse to repent will be judged more severely than those who have less knowledge. But those with less knowledge will still be judged because repentance, as we just talked about, is required. That's some hard teaching, Jesus. Then he gives a second example, reinforcing all the same points. He says, and you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to heaven? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. So Capernaum was Jesus' adopted hometown. You can imagine them being pretty proud of themselves that this great miracle worker who's going around healing people and casting out demons was from their town. And so they thought, hey, we're being lifted up to heaven. And Sodom... Sodom was one of the most notoriously evil cities in the entire Old Testament, and it was destroyed because everyone in the city had become greedy and immoral. And Capernaum, well, it would have been filled with all kinds of moral, upstanding Jewish people. People that you and I would think, that's a good man, that's a good woman. Yet their rejecting Jesus after seeing his miracles means they deserve to be judged more severely than the sexually deviant tyrants from Sodom. And notice again, if all it would have taken would have been a few miracles to save the souls of the people in Sodom, why didn't God do it? Instead, he destroyed them. 
with fire and brimstone, literally. Why send Jesus to Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum to make their eternal judgment worse when he could have gone to Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom and kept them from eternal judgment altogether? And then we're told, at the same time, which means right after Jesus got done saying everything that he said to those towns, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. So we just got done questioning why God would send Jesus to Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum to make their eternal judgment worse when he could have gone to Tyre and Sidon and Sodom and kept them from eternal judgment. And in the very next breath, Jesus praises God for doing that. He even tells us God hides these things from people. In the book of Exodus, Moses asks God to show him his glory. And God tells Moses, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. And the very next thing God says to Moses is, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. You see, part of what it means to be God is to be the one who decides who to have mercy on and who to let go justly to judgment. So when Jesus says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children, he means God is worthy of praise because he has hidden who Jesus really is from these people. God is not obligated to save sinners. If he opens our eyes to see that we're a sinner and that Jesus is the only savior there is, that is a miracle. It's a miracle. And he is worthy of praise because he is the one who chooses who to hide Jesus from and who to reveal him to. And God has hidden him from the wise and the learned. What that means is wise and learned people typically are those who want an undeniable sign. They want scientific proof. Or they want an airtight philosophical argument. They demand that you prove God's existence and that Jesus was really risen from the dead if they're going to believe. But little children, little children simply believe what their father tells them. And Jesus doesn't mean that educated people can never repent and believe or that simple-minded people always will. He means what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He says, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. 
You see, the demonstration of the Spirit's power that Paul's talking about here is not miracles and signs and wonders. It's not lights and smoke. It's the act of God miraculously convincing a sinner that she is a sinner and that only Jesus can save her. And wisdom and learning can never teach that to us. It can only be received like a little child. Educated people and little children come to faith the exact same way, not with wise and persuasive words, but through a demonstration of God's power, convincing them of sin and salvation. And then Jesus says, all things have been committed to me by my Father. Right, declaring his godhood. No one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. And those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. We're going to put verse 25 back up on the screen because I want us to see. In verse 25, it's the Father who chooses to reveal these things. And Jesus says that right after talking about how his miracles were not enough to bring Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum to repentance, and so these things refer to the words and actions of Jesus, okay? Which means the Father is the one who chooses to take the words and actions of Jesus and then reveal those things savingly to somebody. And then in verse 27, Jesus says, all things have been committed to him by his Father, and that no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him being the Father. So in verse 25, salvation happens when the Father chooses to reveal the words and actions of Jesus to someone. In verse 27, salvation happens when Jesus chooses to reveal the Father to someone. Do you see that? Do you see this? Trinitarian interweaving of Jesus' glory here, taking upon himself the same prerogatives as God. Now, why would God choose to reveal himself to some and not to others? Well, as we've said, part of what it means to be God is that he has the right to have mercy on whom he will, have mercy and to have compassion on whomever he chooses to have compassion. And it's not like we're all innocent people and God is just picking and choosing to save some and not others. No, we're all sinners who deserve judgment. And the real shocking thing is not that God chooses to save some people and not others. The real shocking thing is that God would even save one of us. God was not unjust and still judging Sodom and Tyre and Sidon, even though they could have repented because they still got what they truly deserved. He simply chose not to have mercy on them. And Jesus praises the Father for this. And so this is where it gets to the breaking point of our ability to understand, right? Because we want to say, well, how could that be just? And yet we ought not to be so arrogant to question God for something that Jesus is praising God for. 
better to lean in and praise him ourselves. Now, how can somebody know if God has chosen them? That takes us to our final point. You must come. So we've spent a good amount of time this morning peering into the mysteries of God, that we are saved by faith alone, yet the kind of faith that saves is the kind of faith that is accompanied by repentance. Some people repent and others do not because the Father is the one who chooses who he will reveal his Son to, and the Son is the one who chooses who he will reveal his Father to. And so unless God chooses to miraculously reveal himself to you, you cannot repent. And some people might get tripped up here and ask themselves, well, how can I know then if I'm chosen? But the Bible never tells us to ask that question. The Bible says, ask the question, do I believe? Do I believe? Because we don't get to speculate about the mysteries of God, right? It's like walking up to the edge of a cliff and just looking at the beauty of God's mysteries. We don't go any further. We just praise him for all that he is and how he's revealed himself to us in scripture. And Jesus goes on now to make the free offer of the gospel to everyone. He says, come to me, all, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Christian, are you weary this morning? Non-Christian, are you weary this morning? Are you weary of trying to prove yourself to God? Are you weary of trying to be good enough to earn his approval? Are you weary of trying to prove yourself to your spouse or your friends or your boss? Are you weary of feeling like an imposter, like you're going to be found out? Like you're always on the outside looking in? Are you tired of trying to be smart enough, wealthy enough, or pretty enough to fit in? Are you weary of trying to find rest in a drink? Or sinful sexual relationship? Or by looking at pornography? Only to find that the burden of guilt and shame is so much more than the fleeting moment of pleasure? Are you weary and burdened with all the ways this world is telling you to look for comfort and pleasure and significance, but it's never enough? Then come to Jesus, and he will give you rest. Take his yoke upon you and learn from him. A yoke is a wooden beam used to connect two oxen or other animals together so they could pull a cart or a wagon. 
And Jesus is offering his yoke to us this morning. A yoke that we can bear because he has fulfilled all of God's requirements in our place. There's nothing left for us to do if we will only believe and rest in him. He says, come and learn from me. Learn his ways. Learn about his kindness and his mercy and his grace. Learn how to keep his commands, but not to earn his favor, but as an adopted child in his kingdom who is already accepted and loved and who's been given the Holy Spirit to transform you from the inside out instead of burning ourselves out trying to live up to our own standards or everybody else's standards or just giving up because his law is perfect and we can never We can never obey it perfectly. Instead, he invites us in without us having to do anything except believe to become his disciple. He's the only master who is gentle and humble in heart who will truly give us rest for our soul. Every other master in this world whether it's money or sex or power or the approval of other people, will always take from you and take from you and take from you until there's nothing left of our soul. But Jesus is the only master who dies for his people and promises to give us rest for our soul. And if you're here this morning and you're experiencing a miraculous demonstration of God's power inside your heart right now, causing you to believe that Jesus is who he says he is, if you hear the screeching tires and the honking horns of God's judgment, but now you find yourself looking through eyes of faith and seeing that Jesus was judged in your place, whether that demonstration of God's power in your heart right now is affirming a faith you've had for 50 years or it's happening for the very first time, that is a miracle because you believe which means God has chosen you from before the foundation of the world, scripture tells us. And that knowledge of what Jesus has done to save us from our sins and place us under his light and restful yoke, that is a knowledge that cannot rest on worldly wisdom. It rests on the power of God to convince sinners that Jesus is gentle and humble in heart and only he can give us rest for our souls. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning in awe of how you revealed yourself to us in this passage as the judge, as the one who chooses. And yet we also come to you in awe that you make the free offer of the gospel to everyone who will come to Jesus. Believingly, and repentantly and to take his yoke upon us, God, because we will bear a yoke, whether it's the yoke of sin or the yoke of trying to prove ourselves to you in our own righteousness. Instead, Father, you offer us the yoke of Christ, a yoke that is light, a a yoke that transforms us from the inside out, I pray, Father, that you will affirm our faith this morning with these words in Jesus' name. Amen.